we've been away from Second uh, Peter for two Sundays. That's Rini's fault. Living on Earth with a Divine Nature. This is part five. Blind and short-sighted in two directions. I want to talk about that this morning. The text, 2 Peter 1, verses 8 through 11. 2 Peter 1, 8 through 11. I hope in one way or another you always have a Bible. Don't just rely on the screens. I mean, this is designed so you can see what I'm emphasizing in the text. But you should always have a Bible in church in one form or another. 2 Peter 1, 8 to 11. For if these qualities, I'll talk about that in a minute, what these qualities are, if these qualities are yours, so there's these two qualifications, they're yours and they're increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can have knowledge, you can know about the Lord Jesus Christ, and still be that and that. That's something to think about. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities, that's those qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind. Okay? So this is a person who has the knowledge, knows about Jesus, He's sitting in a service like this, has this knowledge, but is still, for all of that, still blind. And the kind of blindness he's talking about isn't not physically being able to see, but it's a memory blindness, having, having forgotten. So it's not never learned. That's not our problem. We've learned. The problem is we forget things. I'll talk about that more next week. He's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. That Greek word means brothers and sisters. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you, if you practice these qualities, so you'll see there's this knowledge here that you can still be blind with because it isn't something that's practiced. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, in what way? Well, practicing these things. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Unless you come, Holy Spirit, we will just learn these things by rote. We will not have our hearts and minds changed because we can't do that. We can control where we will place our thoughts for a little while, but only you can renew our affections and our priorities and our attitudes. And so come, Holy Spirit, and use your word to increase our love and increase our joy in you. In your name I pray. Amen.
So we're continuing our study of this first chapter of 2 Peter. I mentioned these qualities, if these qualities are yours. And I said I'd talk about that. Well, we actually studied those qualities in verses 5 through 7. So for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. When someone comes up to you and says, I want to tell you to do something, and I want you to know you're going to have to make every effort to do it. What's that mean? What does that imply? I mean, if someone comes and says, I'm going to ask you to do something, and I'm, and I'm telling you now, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to make every effort to get this done. Well, what he's saying to me is, you're, you're, you're going to have to work very hard at this if you're going to accomplish it, right? This isn't something that's just going to, like, fall off the tree, like, overly right fruit. This is something that's going to take diligence. You're going to have to apply yourself to it. They're saying there's going to be times when you're not going to feel like doing this. This isn't going to come naturally, but I want you to know you need to make every effort to stay with it. You will not immediately feel like doing what I'm about to suggest. You certainly won't always feel like it, and that's why, verse 5, You're going to have to make every effort. So in verses 8 to 11, where we were, Peter gives these people encouragements, uh, enticements, because they're going to have to make every effort. He wants to say, but there will be enormous benefits to making every effort to add those ingredients that we talked about in verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7. So, so this has nothing to do with just um, some kind of bare religious duty. It does take effort, but it's not just a chore. It, it has to do with... Uh, i got a mess here. Let me clean this up just a wee bit. But if you'll make the effort, it has to do with fruitfulness. You won't be unfruitful. So it has to do, if you'll make the effort, there, there will come into your life in ways you can't even imagine now, uh, an inward joy, uh, an inward sense of authenticity. This has nothing to do with earning salvation with acts of righteousness when he talks about making every effort. Peter's already said that the Christian's righteousness is, is a supplied righteousness. Right in verse 1 of this chapter, he said, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about earning salvation here. So why do we have to add to it? Why do we have to add to it? I mean, what are the reasons, the benefits of 
diligently adding these virtues to our faith. That's what Peter's going to talk about in the, next, in the next four verses. So point number one. These qualities, if you'll make the effort, they'll keep your life from becoming useless and fruitless. You see that in the eighth verse. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they, they, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many people, I wonder, right now, you're sitting right here, and when you hear those words, unfruitful, ineffective, you just say to yourself, that, that's me. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. They tell me all the time that I am. But man alive, I wouldn't call my Christian walk dynamic. I'm easily intimidated. I compromise. I can go weeks without really considering where I stand in the Lord. I have other things that interest me far more, if I'm absolutely honest. That's kind of where I am. Saved, but not very effective. Reasonably happy to be a Christian, but I wouldn't describe it as being fruitful and joyful. It does take a pretty high degree of humility to read those words with an open heart. Most of us don't want to think of our Christian lives as being, verse 8, ineffective. Ineffective in terms of, do you lead other people to Jesus ever? Unfruitful? It's hard to think of our lives in those terms because we've been so accustomed, so trained at measuring our walk with the Lord by how generous he has been with us. And he has. So what's the Lord been doing in your life lately? That's the kind of thing we think about. So we don't actually even stop and consider our lives in terms of how useful or how fruitful we have been for him. How different is this little slice of Christ's kingdom where you are? How different is it because of your engagement in it? Peter states the possibility that a Christian can can become ineffective. That's more polite, isn't it? One of the translations says useless. That a Christian can become useless for the Lord who redeemed him. That his faith can become all, all creed, all mental subscribing to certain theological truths, data, a download that you get on Sunday, certain views about God, certain ideas about Jesus. So... so Peter's inviting us to think about this in slow motion. That word, ineffective. So, it's, it's, it's not enough for me just to hold proper beliefs. That's very important, by the way. But it's not enough. I, I'm expected to be effective. So, so Peter says, I need, to, I need to catch my own mind's attention at least once in a while and ask how useful my life is to my master. How much of his work, how much of his purpose for this lost world 
his agenda? How much of it am I carrying out? How much of my energy goes into this? How much of my time, how much of your time goes into this? How much of your money goes into it? Are, are you forgetting why you're here, Peter says? Are you forgetting why you're here? Why are you here? So you look at the person Peter describes in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you. They, they, they guard against. They keep you from becoming this ineffective, unfruitful kind of Christian in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he outlines this horrible contradiction. He, he sees a person who, far from being an outsider, is an insider. He has knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he uses that proper designation, Lord Lord, when he refers to Jesus. And if only, if only effectiveness and fruitfulness, if only it was measured by how much we knew, I'd be delighted with that arrangement. Or by how much we professed. Or how religious our parents were. Or how long they've been involved in the church. And those aren't bad things. But living faith, Peter says, is measured by effectiveness and fruitfulness. And, and he puts actually two conditions on it. If these qualities are yours and are increasing. So that's one. So here's, here's the, the real deal. Faith, faith that, is, that is personal, yours, yours, and growing, increasing. Those are the two conditions. Peter, Peter says your faith has to be your faith. And I think, he, I think he underscores that because, boy, there's such a propensity, isn't there? My faith can't just be an environmental faith. It's how I was raised. It can't just be hereditary. has to be yours. It has to be yours. It has to be yours in two ways. It has to be yours by conviction. You stand up for it when nobody else does. That's yours, right? Your conviction. Nobody else in your class at university shares that conviction, but it's yours. Nobody else in your workplace has that conviction, but it's yours. Nobody else in your home shares that conviction, but it's yours. No one else in your circle of friends shares those convictions, but you do. They're yours. You own them. If, if this is yours, Peter says. Is it yours? And then he says, and then he says, it has to be increasing. So if this is working right, it, 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 it consumes more of my life now than it did when I was first saved. Not less. 
So it's not like I, I learn the stuff. I'm, I'm in the organization, okay? I've signed the membership card. I get my receipt from the church. I, I'm in. Peter says it's the exact opposite. It, it starts off with this conviction, but, but it mushrooms. It just expands. It, it, will, it will, if it's done right, bite into more and more of your time. Deal with that. It will, if it's working properly, take more and more of your resources. Joyfully, it will take more of your resources. Not grudgingly. Deal with it. It will claim more and more of your affections. Fewer and fewer elements of the faith will be have to, and they'll start to be love to issues. You see the difference in those two things? Delight to. So it has to be increasing. Uh, I have to constantly be pruning the rest of my life, redirecting more and more of my life away from greed away from self-interest, away from materialism, into the purposes of God. It has to be constantly replacing more and more of my natural instincts of pride and self-will. And, and Peter says it never stops increasing. How much faith is enough? Increasing. <laughs> How much commitment is enough? Increasing. So, so, so the question gets very direct, doesn't it? Verse 8, ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the question is, what am I doing with what I know? Is my knowledge of Christ a fruitful knowledge? Is it, is it one that I'm gardening all the time? Tending all the time? It takes constant monitoring. It takes constant nourishment. But it's not a chore. If I will make the effort, there are eternal benefits, the first of which is fruitfulness, effectiveness. We, we will experience constant growth, constant delight, constant fruitfulness in the knowledge of our Lord. Our faith will be an expanding faith. We will, we will sense its own momentum in our souls. It will be real to us. Point number two. Growing faith must resist short-sightedness and forgetfulness. Verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities so, so nearsighted that he is blind. And the problem is having forgotten. He, he just... He doesn't properly remember these things. He can recall them. I gave my heart to the Lord in 1972 and, and uh, Jesus died on the cross for me. He knows. He can remember. But in a, there's a sense in which he forgets. Growing faith must resist short-sightedness and forgetfulness. And I worded it negatively because Peter does. That's the reason I did. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. So, so you notice those words, these qualities, the qualities that 
we studied, Peter talked about in verses 5, 6, and 7. Verse 8, he outlines the benefit of having these qualities. If they are yours, if they are yours, they will keep you. There's the positive side. They will keep you from becoming useless and fruitless. Those are the blessings. Now in verse 9, like any good teacher, he flips the pancake over and looks at the, the negatives. If, but if you don't keep these qualities, whoever lacks these qualities, and Peter warns, and he says, he says two things in his warning. He says, first, we will become, we will become blind and short-sighted. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Not many of us can relate to total blindness. But we, we, can, we can relate to short-sightedness. You, you, can, you, can, uh, you can see things close up, but not far away. I mean, your vision is good, but it's only good for things that are close to you. It's not good for things that are far away from you. You see where Peter's going with this? He's brilliant. Peter describes a person who has that problem, but it's not physical, it's, it's spiritual. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't see things too far in the future in his Christian life. He has sharp vision, but it's vision for things that are close. Person who sees what's on the doorstep, but he can't see what's coming down the road. And because of this, Peter says, this person who has the knowledge of Jesus Christ, this is a Christian, but, but, but he describes a person who, who has to just live for the moment. That's what he sees. His goals are geared to his earthly life. He doesn't go beyond that. So, so he takes care to make every effort in terms of this life, this life's concerns. He studies securing his earthly happiness. He rises early. He stays up late to, to take care of his physical desires, his physical appetites, the material needs of life. But he takes no thought of eternity, judgment, the work to be done in God's kingdom. He doesn't call to mind his future accountability before the Lord. He doesn't remind himself of... Let me show you what I mean by that, by the way. Guys told me I could do this, and I'm going to figure this out. Here. Is this coming on the screen? Hello? Two ways of thinking about this. So that says what? I don't want to look at the word that way. I want to look at it like this. See if this feels different. Not remind, but re-mind. Reprogram. Reset. Do you see the difference? Redoing the mind. That, that's, what, that's what Peter's talking about. This person just sees stuff close up and he can't 
reprogram, remind, remindedness. He, he can't make himself see farther down the road. He's just nearsighted. Everything's close. Everything's immediate. He's consumed by it. He can't help it. That's all he sees. He knows there's other stuff. He can recall, but he's not reminding himself in the process. He sees little bits of the journey, not the destination. He enjoys looking at the scenery out the window, but he's not thinking about where he's going. He started a trip. He opens up Google Maps. It's a great program, isn't it? You use Google Maps. Let me tell you how it won't work. You must punch in a destination, right? If you just drive without punching in a destination, it's just give you an, a recording of where you are, but not where you're going. You've got to punch in a destination. Peter says there are all sorts of Christians. They know about Jesus. They go to church. They sing the songs. But they're not re-minding, reprocessing, thinking about where, where are we going with this? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What has to be done and what doesn't have to be done? What will count most and what will count less? It's a huge problem. Peter will address it. He'll address it in this text and next Sunday's text. He'll talk about exactly the same thing. Memory. Spiritual memory. It's the ultimate example of foolishness. It is, quite simply, literally, the biggest mistake a person can make. All the other mistakes are small compared to that one. All the other actions of all the other fools in the world combined don't add up to that miscalculation. You can see it in the words of the Apostle John. Beloved, we are God's children now. Note the tenses. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, so here's the mind, eh, right now, thinking. That when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Okay, there's the theological truth. And everyone who thus hopes, there's the verb. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Note that verb, hopes. That's the action word. So this hoping fills his mind. First thing each morning when he gets up, this is what he thinks about. He is increasingly reminding himself about this living hope, organizing his life around this living hope. Because he knows you, you can't live wise if you don't remember wise, if you don't think wise. So this is a person, he who has this hope. That's a person who has a destination in view. He knows Jesus is coming. He doesn't just know it. He thinks about that every day. 
He, he reminds himself around hope. How do you know he's thinking about it? How do you know he has that faith in his heart? Well, he recognizes he has no time to waste. Every minute counts. Every dollar counts. So he labors to keep his life pure and clean, not just because he wants to be a nicer person. He's thinking about a destination. He knows where he's going. He's constantly getting ready for that every moment. I said there were two dangers. There's a second one Peter talks about when he thinks about forgetfulness. Peter warns against forgetfulness about past sins. It's in the last half of that ninth verse as we work our way through it. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. So you can see this person's problem. Not only can this person not see forward to the hope, the destination, but he's also forgotten the biggest redemptive event in his past. Blind and short-sighted, I said in the title, in two directions. He doesn't hope actively toward his right future, and he doesn't remember properly his redemptive past. The Bible's pretty clear about why Jesus died for you. It might be surprising to you. If you ask the average Christian why Jesus died, here's what he'll say. He died to bring forgiveness. It's not at all untrue. It's perfectly true. It's glorious. The Bible usually doesn't emphasize that, first and foremost. Who gave himself, this is Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself of people for his own possession who are zealous for good, good works. So, the negative part, cleanse us from all lawlessness. The positive part, purify for himself people that are zealous for good works. Redeem us from lawlessness. Purify us for holiness. Good works without the cross are dead works. They won't get you into heaven. Through the cross, you must perform good works in Christ Jesus. Careless, small-minded Christians think that all that was accomplished for them on the cross was their past sins. That record, it's just shredded. They're off the hook. All their moral concessions have been prepaid, kind of like a phone card, and they can just use it up in life. They actually think they can live as they please, and it's okay. Forgiveness will come. And that's because, Peter says, that's because they've, they've forgotten that they've been cleansed, not just from the guilt of their sin, cleansed from their former sins. Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll famously said, this is a good quote, it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. That's a good quote. So Peter says, if you don't apply all diligence to add these virtues, 5, 6, and 7, 
You, you've simply forgotten God's whole plan in saving you. You can, you can talk about forgiveness of sins, you can partake in communion, you can be baptized, but unless you keep that purpose of the cross before you, unless you stay close and remember the ugliness of all your sin, unless you live every moment with some idea of being bought, purified from former sins, you'll, you'll never get the connection between the cross and a present life of power and purity in Christ. The Bible just makes this such a living issue at every communion service. Here's what Paul thought about when he thought about the cross of Jesus. Probably here's the text to hold in mind when we have the next communion service. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? By which the world has been crucified to me and I've been crucified to the world. I glory in the cross, Paul says. But it's not just because my sins were erased. I glory in the sense that I recognize that through the cross I've been purified from my past. I don't live there anymore. My relationship to the world around me is totally different because I always remember. Remember. Think of it this way. The connections of his life. Remember. So it's, it's reconnecting your life to the cross. Like a member. Three, got to hurry. If you apply all diligence in adding these virtues to your faith, you will grow in assurance and stability. He says it in 110. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, and I think of that text in James, right, where he talks about a person that looks in a mirror and he sees it and he walks away and doesn't do anything. You won't get anywhere like that. The whole purpose is to practice it, to change. If you practice these things, you will never fall. Let me just deal quickly with, I think, a point of confusion in a lot of people's minds. A lot of people wonder about assurance, uh, being sure of salvation, knowing for sure And they're disturbed because salvation, yeah, salvation is by grace, through faith. It's not by works. It never will be by works. It is free, by grace, through faith. That's salvation. That is not assurance of salvation. Those are two different things. A lot of people are surprised I dealt with this in my Christian ed class. If you go through the New Testament pretty consistently, you will find that assurance is related to works. Salvation isn't. But assurance of salvation is. And I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I want to try and show you that real quick. Let's look at four. There are dozens. Just look at the emphasis in in these verses. And... By this we know. So what are we talking about here? This is assurance, right? Right? You're all with me? By this we know that we have come to know him. How do we know? Well, we we keep his commandments. You don't get saved keeping his commandments. 
That is how you get assurance of being saved. Look at this. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. Watch. By this we may be sure. What are we talking about? Assurance. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way. Assurance is related to walking as Jesus walked. Let's do just a couple more. We know, so the subject is assurance, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know? Well, we love the brothers. One more. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, what? We shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. More passages could be added, but the point ought to stand out. God loves us too much to allow us to feel saved when we willfully act unsaved. He's too gracious for that. Assurance is the right of people who walk in the light, who renounce the flesh, who obey Jesus at all costs. Peter says, add these virtues to your faith. Grow in grace and holiness. Apply all diligence. Make every effort. What will happen? You'll have joy and confidence in your walk with Jesus. That's the fruit that he's talking about. Four. Apply all diligence to add these virtues to your faith and you will find God's grace adequate when life on this earth fades away. You're going to die. I don't do it all the time. I do it once in a while, and I'm not sick in the head. There are times, honestly, I will, I get up in the morning, I get my shaver, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I, and I do. I say to myself, you're going to die. That's not a bad thing. We're going to leave this world. Everybody. Here's what Peter says. Beautiful. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me sum up this way. Verse 8, Peter talks about people who were so nearsighted that they're blind. We looked at that. And maybe there's no greater example of it than in this 11th verse. There, there comes a time. There comes a time for entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord. And the fact that Peter isn't talking about salvation and getting saved is it's still in the future. He says, will be richly provided for you. It's the future tense. He's not talking about becoming a Christian. So here's the utter folly of this short-sighted man who doesn't remember what life's about, blind. He's not thinking about the one thing that's, that's coming at him with unavoidable momentum. He has to leave all his treasures behind. He has to leave all of his loved ones behind. He has to face God all by himself. He can't phone a friend. 
and it will be too late to change anything. And he's not thinking about this. Maybe you're not thinking about it. Not so for those diligent in a faith, a faith that's their own and a faith that's increasing. Peter says an entrance will be richly supplied. I like that. Uh, Death is not an uncharted voyage. It isn't drifting into the unknown. Here's a person who is sure of where he's going. A point of entry is ready. He's been making every effort. He's been embracing the promise about heaven and eternity. He's been planning for it. He's been reminding his soul about that. He's been meditating on heaven. He's been purifying his life. He's been setting his affection, like Paul says, on things above. So Lewis Carroll is right. It is a very poor sort of memory that only works backwards. Let me close, and I mean it this time. I was still in Bible school I was young, and I used to, I still have them on my shelf, I used to read omnivorously the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is still the pastor, Westminster Chapel in London. And he writes about this very text. I still have the old book on 2 Peter about this abundant entrance being made. And he says this. I read this for the first time in 1974. And I have it all underlined. I've read it many times since. Abundant entrance. What does it mean, he says? It means something like this. The Christian who has responded to Peter's appeal, who has been making every effort to living a full Christian life, does not die full of regrets at his failures and shortcomings. He is rather one who can say with Paul, as he viewed his end, I have fought the faith, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown. That is the way the true Christian dies. He has been giving this diligence. He has been living the life. He does not feel he has been wasting his time He does not say, if only I could go back. There are no bitter regrets. He is sure of abundant entrance. There's two ways of viewing a sermon like this. Careless people will say, boy, Pastor Don, that's really hard. It costs so much. Man, it seems to take all our time. Life's already busy. What does God expect from me? If that's what you're hearing, you're missing it. Wiser people will look at those precious, magnificent promises. They will see the call to make sure their faith is their own and that it's increasing. They will see the prize before them, the hope that it generates, the joy that arises as fruit in the soul. They will sense the reason they were put on this earth, the reason Jesus came, the reason Jesus died, and they will know that compared to all that this world could ever offer, diligence in faith offers God's greatest reward in this life 
terms of joy and meaning and fulfillment and eternity in the life to come. That's how wise people will see Peter's words. Let's pray.